Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are talking about the short story Horror on the Links by Seabury Quinn. Uh, this was published in Weird Tales in 1925. This is the first story in a long series of stories by Seabury Quinn about the uh, occult detective Jules de Grandin. This is a really fun story. It ties itself, it knits itself in very closely with, uh, I don't know, the tradition of weird tales or strange detective stories that came before it. Uh, it's going to be fun to look at that and talk about what is going on in this story, how Seabury Quinn is maybe innovating that or just, uh, I don't know, doing a pastiche. But this story was a blast to read. I had a great time. I can't wait to just talk about it because it's so much fun. I don't know if I'll have much of substance to say, but I really loved a lot of what Seabury Quinn was up to in this story. Yeah, this is actually our second occult detective story in a row, though this one is really you know, dialing the occult detectiveness up to 11, whereas The Inmost Light by Arthur Mackin that we did last time was you know, obliquely an occult detective story. There were, there were some other narrative things going on there, but we did end up talking about detective fiction quite a bit in the discussion. And certainly that is what we're going to be doing a lot of this <laughs> time. Well, as we are saying, we, you know, this is an occult detective story, and this really is a classic detective story of the Sherlock Holmes type, or, you know, maybe because we're on Elder Sign, we should say of the C. Auguste Dupin type. But in either case, whichever of these uh, archetypal detectives we prefer, what this means is that we have a first person account from the sidekick character. But in this case, the horror on the links is the origin story for our detecting duo. And so the narrator doesn't yet know that he's the sidekick, though he's going to figure that out pretty quickly. And he is a doctor, very much like Watson. And so the story begins with Dr. Trowbridge receiving a midnight phone call that summons him to the home of one of the families he cares for. So there's a young man in the family. He's college-aged, I think. But uh, what really matters is that he's unconscious and he has some long cuts all over him. And his, his face has a look of dread. And then, as he starts to regain consciousness, he starts shouting about the ape thing that's got him. But that's it. Uh, Dr. Trowbridge just injects him with some opium and then goes home and goes back to bed. <laughs> and it's totally fine. And I'm sure that that was perfectly standard medical practice in 1925, even though it was quite shocking to read here in uh, you know the 21st century. Uh, and our story picks up the next morning when Dr. Trowbridge discovers in the newspaper that a young woman has been found dead at the golf course of the Sedgemore Country Club. Uh, she was terribly mutilated. But the doctor doesn't have time to wonder if these two events might be connected, because some cops are here to ask him about this murder that he's literally just been reading about in the newspaper. And it's, you know, not because they think he had anything to do with it, but because they've made the connection between the two events that he has not made yet, and they want the doctor to tag along while they question the patient that he saw last night, uh, the one he doped up with opium. Uh, and I say they, but really what is happening here is that a regular cop in this New Jersey town is dropping off a specialist. Uh, this is a, a guy who is a visiting consultant from France, a guy named Professor Jules de Grandin. He is a criminologist. He's, he's maybe also a medical doctor of some kind himself. Uh, he definitely wrote a book called Accelerated Evolution. And although he is in New Jersey on a totally different matter, he is going to help look into these events. And de Grandin, as Brandon said at the top of the show, Grandin is our detective. He's the Dupin. He's the Holmes of this story. Uh, though Quinn maybe has uh, more immediately in mind somebody else famous from detective stories. So let's get the description of Jules de Grandin and, and see if this description rings any bell. So here's what Trowbridge writes. He was a perfect example of the rare French blonde type, rather under medium height, but with a military erectness of carriage that made him seem several inches taller than he actually was. His light blue eyes were small and exceedingly deep-set, and would have been humorous had it not been for the curiously cold directness of their gaze. With his blonde mustache waxed at the end in two perfectly horizontal points, and those twinkling, stock-taking eyes, he reminded me of an alert tomcat. Uh, so that should remind us of somebody else. This description of LeGrandin really calls to mind the way that Agatha Christie describes Poirot. The influence here is pretty clear. 
I will say, though, that I've only read The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, which is actually a great introduction to the Poirot character because it's described by a true outsider. It's not the classic detective duo that you find in the other Poirot stories. It's a great novel, by the way. I think uh, that's one that I'd recommend to anybody. Um, I've seen many adaptations of her work as well. And I, and I mean, if you're trying to smuggle a new character into the public consciousness, imitation is a, is a great way to do it. Seabury Quinn has given his readers something really comfortable and familiar to latch onto in terms of characteristic and, and character itself. And it, that kind of idea of familiarity is what Quinn is up to in general in this story. This whole story is an exercise in changing the formula by degrees. And I, I, I think it works beautifully, even though it's kind of a light story. This book, Accelerated Evolution, I, I wish it were a real book. There's like a few metal albums, I think, that have this title. But I, <laughs> I, I think, uh, you know, we're going to have to add this book to the library of books that d don't exist that we want to read. In my opinion, it's got to be about the X-Men or, or something right. like that. <laughs> and and I, I want to point out a few things about the opening of this story, too. There, there's just a lot of lightheartedness in the opening of the story. Dr. Trowbridge is already an immediately kind of great and funny character. Uh, as he narrates this tale with this light touch he says with regard to getting the phone call in the middle of the night that physician's sleep is like a park public property and this is a great line that gives us kind of a sense of built-in world weariness to dr trowbridge and glenn yes I, I love how this treatment of the patient is to shoot him up with morphine <laughs> do a little bandaging and, and call it a day i mean trowbridge just wants to go back to sleep yeah that's right i mean this is also i think when basically this is what parents did to their baby so they could go back to sleep as, <laughs> as well you know you described what quinn is doing here with poirot and this is exactly beat for beat point for point a description of poirot with the exception that he's blonde otherwise it is exactly poirot you describe this as smuggling but i actually think that if she had known about this story and had wanted to do anything about it i mean you know to be clear i am not uh, any kind of uh, copyright lawyer and certainly not a copyright lawyer in the 1920s. But I think Agatha Christie would have had a real case because even the title of this story is in direct reference to a Poirot book that had come out literally just a year and a half before this magazine hit the stands. And that's The Murder on the Links. And here we have the horror on the links with, you know, the blonde version of the protagonist of Agatha Christie's <laughs> book. It seems dangerously close to, to some kind of violation here. Although, you know, Quinn did not make a whole lot of money. And I don't think he was taking business away from Agatha Christie here, but it is, it is really blatant. I actually wondered if, if you were going to go read Murder on the Links uh, in preparation for this story. You, you did not. I did. Though. I did not. Yes, <laughs> I did. But it, it it is not relevant in any way other than that Seabury Quinn was uh, definitely trying to get people to buy this, uh, this magazine and to, to, you know, buy this story uh, by making it clear that if you like Agatha, Agatha Christie, you're going to like what he's doing here too. And, you know, I like Agatha Christie and I do like what he's doing here too. So he wasn't wrong. No. And I, and I, don't, I don't know if he would. I mean, I, I don't know if he would get in trouble, uh, though. I don't know what the copyright laws were in the, in the first quarter of the 20th century. Um, he's, th I think, changed enough, but a lot of these tropes are not protected by copyright. So there's also stuff that he just, he, it, it's the change by degrees, you know, that, that is really the watchword of this story. And we're going to see more of him smuggling or sneaking in or really imitating familiar stories uh, in order to make his own world. And I think you could call this almost like a cover album by a band <laughs> or something like that, you know, like this, this story is a, it's a cover and what he does with it opens up new avenues of creativity, I think, within himself to pursue what he's begun. And I think this is how every great artist gets started is with this kind of imitation and change. And by the time they find their own voice, the, the recognizable isn't there as much, though I don't think Seabury Quinn ever venture too far from the recognizable and familiar. Yeah, there there are 80 of these stories. Seabury Quinn is the most published writer in Weird Tales. Uh, you know, today we we have a phrase that we that we use, the Weird Tales big 3, and we mean Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard and Clark Ashton Smith. But Seabury Quinn published more stories in Weird Tales than any of them did, and he was the biggest name. People bought 
uh, in droves the issues that he was on in, in ways that they didn't necessarily when it was Howard or Lovecraft or Smith who was was headlining the the, the issue that uh, that month. Um, and, and in fact, Lovecraft had a real envy of Seabury Quinn. He hated him and he hated these stories. Um, and he had all sorts of artistic reasons for hating them. But I, I think that it's probably fair to say that there was a lot of envy wrapped up in that as well. But yeah, there are 80 of these things. This is the first one. We are not going to do all 80 of them on the show. That's just never going to happen, though I really love this story and I want desperately to read more. I do think that it would be well worth doing at some point to, maybe not as the next one, but I would love to see where the character does end up. You know, maybe not story number 80, but we, you know, maybe we jump ahead to story number 20 and, you know, we could do some spot checking and see what some of the developments are and uh, and test your, uh, your assertion here, Brandon, that he's going to be exactly the same as he is here in this story. <laughs> well, we'll see. And Quinn also got paid more than the other big three writers uh, per story as well, which I think kind of rankled, uh, obviously rankled Lovecraft's own sense of who Quinn was, because these are hacky stories. And I, I'm going to point out as we go along, some of this sort of hack writing technique that I actually think is pretty useful. And I don't think any serious writer can discount the utility of some of these techniques um, in trying to get a story sold or trying to reach a popular audience if that's their goal as uh, as a writer. Yeah, and the, the irony, I, I guess, of of this, I don't know, um, rivalry is not the, the best way to put it, because I'm not sure that Seabury Quinn cared at all about H.P. Lovecraft, like thought about him ever once, but, but Lovecraft certainly wrote quite a bit about Seabury Quinn. Seabury Quinn actually had a, a upper middle class day job. He was, in fact, himself an attorney and was doing quite well at that job and didn't need to be writing for the money. Lovecraft was allergic to work, would never take a job, and uh, but would not write pulpy stuff for for the money, even though he could have. He could have written his own series of occult detective stories and made a good living and then therefore not died, you know, only halfway through, you know, his life. And uh and also probably still had time to write the masterpieces that he wrote as well. He just didn't want to stoop to that level. And so there's uh there's maybe some I don't know, dramatic irony, I guess, since we, the audience, know how these stories work out, which is uh, uh, is a real shame. And uh, it would be interesting someday, I think, to take a look at what Lovecraft does have to say, not just about Quinn, but about a lot of the writers that uh, that we work on. And, and these are comments that come in letters, by the way, and then also, of course, his, uh, his magnificent essay, Supernatural Horror in Literature, which I think we've really only mentioned one time on the show. And that was, you know, the very first episode, our kind of uh, zero episode, introducing what is the, the scope of, you know, the literature that we're going to be covering here. So we should do something like that someday. Well, let's get back to the the present story. So the patient in question here, the patient that they are all now going to visit is Paul Maitland, and it is time to get his backstory. Oh, he was at the country club last night, and he took his girlfriend Gladys home at a perfectly reasonable hour. But then he realized that he had left his cigarette case at the club, and so he decided to go back for it. So he's driving back to the club, and as he goes by the golf course, he hears a woman screaming, and he stops the car, and he rushes to investigate, and he sees a woman's body on the ground, and then nearby is some kind of monster. Now, this monster is not as tall as he is, but it is twice as wide, and its hands hang down to the ground. It's dark and hairy, but it's also wearing a tuxedo. And Paul yells at it to go away, but it just jumps up and down. And so he shoots it with the 22 caliber pistol that he likes to keep with him for safety. You know, as all Americans do, I guess. <laughs> but the, the monster just took the gun and snapped it in half and then beat up Paul pretty seriously. And that's where the doctor comes into the story. And so all of that in, is interesting. That encounter is interesting. But there is no time to dwell on it because Dr. Trowbridge has now been summoned to see yet another patient who was also at the country club last night. And this is another young man. Uh, this young man is named Manley, and he boards with the Comstock family. And hey, he was shot with a small caliber gun. Might not have been a twenty-two, but could have been. But he's going to be fine, so let's not bother connecting any dots just yet. And instead, let's go to the morgue. Uh, the young woman who died and is at the morgue now, her name is Sarah Humphreys, and she has the exact same types of injuries as Paul Maitland, uh, but she also 
was strangled to death. And Dr. Trowbridge thinks that the, the marks on her neck indicate that this must have been some kind of, you know, rope or some, you know, something, some kind of strangulation device. But DeGrandin knows that the rules of this genre demand that great detectives leap to totally crazy conclusions that are going to turn out to be completely correct. And so playing his part just fine, he announces that this was no rope or anything that strangled Sarah. It was the hand of an ape. An ape in a tuxedo. And, and that's a big act break there. Yeah, I, we have this description of the the attacker here as hairy as an ape and strong, too. Uh, this puts us squarely in like in uh, Murders in the Room Morgue remix here. <laughs> here. Here's another like hacky technique I want to point out. Glenn, you, you brought this up in your recap, but this is another technique that I think is pretty useful in the world of like word economy and writing and selling stories. And, and this is what happens. As soon as the characters learn a piece of information, it is immediately relevant to the plot. There's no like red herrings here. There's no info dump. It's just like, here's the information. Here's how it's relevant. They learn about the eight man getting shot and then hear about Mr. Manley being shot. Obviously there's a connection, but what keeps us turning the pages is discovering how these things are connected, not the fact that it's kind of lazy to just give somebody a piece of information and then have it immediately relevant. We're, you know, Quinn is trying to sell to a magazine with a word count uh, max, probably. Right. Yeah. You've invoked the murders in the room orc here. Hey, yeah, this is the murders in the room orc. We're going to see more of that, though. It is a mashup with uh, something else seminal in uh, the development of weird fiction, which is all brilliant. This is a really fun and brilliant story. But yeah, unlike the Murders in the Rue Morgue, it is not a whodunit, right? Uh, you know, and of course, Murders in the Rue Morgue was the first story that we we ever did here on the show. We did a two-parter on that. And, you know, thinking all the way back to the, the origins of Elder Sun here, right, what really characterized that story was that Poe was presenting us with the evidence in this almost clinical way and inviting us, the reader, to try to make sense of it. And of course, we can't possibly make sense of it because, hey, it turns out that nobody murdered the the people in the Rue Morgue. It was an orangutan the whole time, right? And so, you know, we're given all these clues that can't possibly make sense because the solution to the problem is totally absurd. But here, Seabury Quinn wants us to know what the solution to this is going to be, as you say. And it's really just that we're along for the ride. We're here for the how, not for the, the whodunit. We're going to be looking in the discussion about whether or not C. Barry Quinn really followed the rules of the mystery fiction. I'm on the fence about whether or not he did. And, and I also am not always the biggest fan of those rules. I think they work 90% of the time and are worth following. But I also like uh, writers who are able to break those rules. The rule being don't give the protagonist, the detective, more information than the audience has because the audience likes to solve the mystery too. Um, but Legrandon is clearly carrying these revelations within himself, these epiphanies that I think are fairly obvious to a reader of the genre, but I don't know if they quite follow the rules. I don't want to talk about that now. We'll get to that in the discussion. <laughs> uh, but I think it's an interesting um, question to explore in this story in particular. I, I want to talk about the reveal that we get that the ape is wearing evening clothes. This is an example of like Legrandin being like, yes, but was the ape wearing a tuxedo? Um, sort of thing that nobody <laughs> could guess. And I'm thinking first that even though we're in murders in the room, more territory, uh, that this is someone in a costume because that would also explain the lack of fingerprints on the girl's neck. But then I'm also thinking like, hey, why would a costume like this exist? Why would like an ape costume in a torn evening outfit, why, who would make this costume in like 1925? And then I'm thinking like, hey, the horror on the Lynx cosplay scene is really weak. Like I want to go <laughs> to a convention and see someone in this costume. But but mostly what I'm thinking is, hey, where's the creepy Ferris wheel operator who's mad about the economy and like scaring people away from his home inside the, the house of mirrors at the boarded up carnival you know this has that kind of feel of like the town where like the monsters are really people and you know, scooby-doo is really what i'm talking about glad you brought this up off off mic but yeah at this point i'm really wondering like there is no other explanation than someone is wearing a mask and and like murdering 
people that ruined the town's economy or something like that. Uh, one thing you didn't point out, Glenn, is that Lagrandin just kind of moves in with Dr. Trowbridge here. He's just going to end up moving in. And based on what I've read about these stories, I, I don't know if he ever moves out. Right. That's definitely my sense. We actually get next in, in interlude while the, the detective goes over the case with his assistant, which is, you know, a classic part of this. And all of this is expedited by the fact that DeGrandin has, has moved in with Dr. Trowbridge. And it, you know, I mean, we get this moment here because this is the origin story for, you know, the next 79 stories. And my definite sense is that they are, he's not going to move out, that he's just moving into this guy's house. I don't know if he's ever going to pay any rent or like, hell, I guess he does help with the groceries. He's brought some food with him. So at least that's something. But, you know, this is uh, a feature of it. This is less of a Poirot move here, right? But this is a big feature of of Holmes and Watson and, of course, of, uh, of Poe, of C. August Dupin, where, you know, they live together, right? So that's a callback to uh, to that part of the, the genre as well. And in this interlude, uh, de Grandin reveals that he found gorilla hairs in Manley's room. Uh, also, there are scratches outside of Manley's second floor window. And he's also been interviewing people about Manly, and nobody knows anything about him. Uh, they also definitely don't know how he came to be engaged to the Comstock daughter, so he is something of a mystery. But moreover, the Comstock servant tells the detective that Manley had gone to bed early that night complaining of both a headache and a backache. But then this same servant heard Manley come in the house uh, a little bit after midnight, but he had never heard him leave, and that would have been impossible, at least if he had gone out the front door. Now, there's one more detail, which is that a policeman saw Manley staggering around as if he was drunk, and this happened near the house of Mr. Kalmar, who has only been in town for a year and whom no one ever sees. And so, naturally, de Grandin wants to check out that house. And what they find is that Kalmar has a, a workshop, and he's busy there doing something. They can't quite tell what it is. But what they can see clearly is that he is very definitely wearing mad scientist clothing. And so now de Grandin has another story to share, some more backstory. And this is this is where things really go off the rails. You know, if the whole like ape in a tuxedo hadn't already gone off the, the rails. <laughs> so here's what the story is. Before the First World War, there was an Austrian scientist named Dr. Beneckendorf who moved to Paris. He was brilliant. Uh, de Grandin knew him personally, but Beneckendorf went too far and they had to put him in restraint. They had to lock him up. And they had to do that because he had been kidnapping the children of poor families in Paris and performing experiments on them. And when the police raided his lab, they found little ape creatures, uh, little creatures not completely simian, but not completely human either. And of course, these were the missing children, and they were all dead. So yeah, they locked him up. But then, during the First World War, he escaped. He was never recovered, though there were reports of him in the Belgian Congo. And so, yeah, as we've said, right, we've got one part, Murders in the Rue Morgue, which we have seen already. But now we've got another part, Island of Dr. Moreau, here. Uh, and we're going to find out how this backstory connects with the golf course in New Jersey in our next scene. Yeah, that that's absolutely right. And I, I hadn't really considered it on that level because I was just thinking a lot about, as I brought up in our, our last episode, The Inmost Light, the connection of like the weird scientist, like mad scientist trope and how that's become like a major part of our techno thriller fiction. I brought up Michael Crichton last week, but it's also people like James Rollins and uh Lincoln Child and Doug Douglas Preston, this weird shift of like the mad scientist into and weird fiction into like airport novels uh, was what I was thinking about. But I guess uh, I had recently uh, begun listening to the Island of Dr. Moreau and audio tape. And, and it just that to me feels so different because it's like a sailor tale. It's got this um, most dangerous game vibe to it. And, and that kind of spawned in my sense, this whole other world of, of 20th century fiction that I forget that it's like really a mad scientist story <laughs> um, at its core when I, when I approach it. Um, and this, this story feels like it's just in a different world altogether. But you're right to point out that Dr., as we're going to learn his name, Beneckendorf, uh, is doing 
some weird like human animal hybrid stuff but the way he does it the way he ends up solving this kind of scientific problem is with a different means than kind of genetic splicing and, and weird stuff like that i do want to point out here mr manley doesn't talk to anyone we get descriptions of him he's kind of moody uh, but he's rides well, and this is enough to fool the Comstock family, I guess. <laughs> and, and we get this question of like, Hey, why did Miss Comstock even fall in love with Mr. Manley? But I suspect she's like 17 years old and this kind of goth dude is probably pretty <laughs> cool to her. <laughs> I think it's a really solid question. He like broods a lot and he doesn't talk to anyone. And he's like hanging out in his room and leaving at all hours of the night, especially like with the, when the moon changes, uh, he's your classic sort of Byron-esque romantic hero, I, I guess in the mind of the young Miss Comstock. But, uh, I thought it's a really funny description, especially as we learn more about him in this story. Uh, I do want to point out that Legrandin is kind of plays dirty. He bought, clothes where he found the gorilla hairs uh, from Mr. Manley. He bought these discarded clothes from a, a from a servant. And, you know, also in, in his talking about what's going on as he's kind of trying to get Trowbridge to open his mind to the possibility of this like real gorilla in a tuxedo situation uh, that he says that men have gone mad knowing what I know. And Trowbridge obviously doesn't want to know any of this or even to know that <laughs> this thing is a possibility. But this also gives us the information that Legrandin has been living in weird fiction territory for a long time. And now he's in New Jersey. So like he's deep in that weird fiction territory. Yeah, you're right. The weirdest element of this story might be that it's just in suburban New Jersey, though, you know, that's a, a move that we we admired about uh, Legati and the frolic is that, you know, this weird horror was taking place in the in the, the mild mannered suburbs. And that's basically what we have here, though, you know, uh, moving the pulps there seems seems somehow stranger actually than uh, than moving cosmic horror there. Well, we're just about at the end of this story, so we return now to the Comstock so that we can interview Mrs. Comstock. And hey, it turns out that she actually used to be engaged to Doctor Beneckendorf, but she broke it off when she discovered that he enjoyed torturing animals. But before Dr. Beneckendorf left, he threatened her with what is a pretty great, pretty creepy mad scientist speech. I'm just going to read this here. I go, but I return. Nothing but death can cheat me. And when I come back, I shall bring on you and yours a horror such as no man has known since the days before Adam. And uh, it's a pretty great speech. It is really creepy, I think. But hey, let's not worry about that right now, because we really need to know more about Manly. Manley arrived at the Comstocks about a year ago, and he had a letter of introduction from one of Mr. Comstock's friends from college, who happens to now live in Cape Town, South Africa. And so Manley has been living with them for a while. It's a, a sort of temporary arrangement. Except, of course, right, that Manley and uh, the daughter Comstock fell in love and are going to be married next week. And I, I think your uh, your description of, of the archetype that Manley is here is, uh, is spot on, Brandon. But of course, right, at this point, DeGrandin is suspicious of Manley's arrival. And it turns out, as it has to turn out, that indeed, the college friend does not actually live in Cape Town. And so now it is time to go to a gun shop in order to buy a Winchester rifle. And this move here, Brandon, this to me seemed like it should be climactic, but it really is not. DeGrandin actually now just hangs around town with his rifle for an entire month. And what he's doing is observing things before he finally gets Trowbridge to, to join him in Act 3. And I guess they're still just living together for that entire month while nothing is actually happening. It's a sort of a, a strange move. But the action is back on now. And so DeGrandin gives a big speech about how it is a well-known mystery of science that the phases of the moon have such a profound effect on us. But even though we don't know why this happens, we know that it does. And hey, it has been one month. So uh, just watch the Comstock house with me, is what he says to Dr. Trowbridge. Uh, and as soon as the family goes to bed, a gorilla climbs out of the daughter Comstock's window 
And this gorilla is, in fact, carrying the daughter Comstock. It's, you know, straight out of King Kong, basically. Uh, and they shoot the gorilla. Uh, the gorilla drops the, the woman and flees. And Trowbridge, who, you know, we should remember, is our narrator, uh, he attends to the daughter while de Grandin goes after the gorilla. And so what that means is that we only get the rest of the story when the detective returns, since the narrator is not actually present for the real climactic resolution of the of the, the story. But what we learn is that the gorilla ran to the house of Mr. Kalmar and, and, and tore up Mr. Kalmar. But de Grandin killed the gorilla and then identified Kalmar as Dr. Beneckendorf. I mean, we, the audience, had, of course, already put that together. And then de Grandin destroyed all of the serums and potions that Beneckendorf was using to turn men into monkeys and monkeys into men. And now the, the story ends with de Grandin advising the local police department simply to list Manley as missing. And so we're left wondering if, if Manley was a human who'd been turned into a gorilla or if Manley was a gorilla who'd been turned into a human. I mean, my, my sense of it is that Beneckendorf adopted a gorilla and turned him into a man with, you know, I don't know if I'm following the logic of Smallville here, he used kryptonite <laughs> serum. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and then he needed to give the ape regular injections to keep him as the human. This is all pretty baffling. It strains even my suspension of disbelief, but it makes for a great yarn. The damsel in distress is saved and that scientist is killed by his creation. It's a little intense and life goes on in sleepy Harrisonville, New Jersey. <laughs> there, there's a lot going on in the end of this story. I, I do want to point out that there, it's not just the, the phases of the moon here that Legrandin is watching. It's also like for the wedding day because Beneckendorf and Kalmar are the same person. Legrandin is thinking that like he's going to destroy this family's happiness with the wedding. Like his whole plot is to like insert this ape man into the family, have the daughter fall in love with the ape man by pulling on like Byronic romantic tropes and then have it revealed that it's the ape and then the ape like destroys the wedding, I suppose, or kidnaps the girl. I don't, I don't know. It's a little confusing. It, it seems to rely on a lot of factors that are hard to control. But I mean, it's a real mad scientist tale. And, and the most popular mad scientist story of all time is probably Frankenstein, though. I think the Island of Dr. Moreau is another one. Uh, but this trend of mad science has continued and sort of env envelops a lot of our wariness about technological progress that we don't really have a hand in, in or a say in controlling. And I think we'll want to think about why mad science is so prevalent in, in 20th century popular fiction. But I also want to talk a little more about Beneckendorf, too. He's a really bad dude. He, he's completely without empathy uh, in harming animals. He's furious when he's not praised for what he thinks he ought to be praised for in this romantic partner, rather than considering that, hey, your loved ones who see all of you might have some pretty good insights about where you need to cool, cool it, you know, like if you're torturing animals and, and he's just purely a narcissist. There's just one more uh, reference I want to bring up here, which is that Seabury Quinn and Legrandin invokes Tanit here as kind of being in charge of the moon. I didn't see like a real reference as I was looking this up where she's directly some kind of moon goddess. She was the chief goddess of the people of Carthage going back to the, to the fifth century BC, I guess is when it shifted. Um, but she's the consort of, of Baal and worshiped readily along with Baal by, by the Carthage people. And I'm not sure if she, as I said, has anything specific to do with the moon, but she was associated with the heavens. So maybe that's where Quinn got this reference from, but all this moon talk also makes me think we're kind of tugging on some shapeshifter strings, some shapeshifter territory here. Maybe not a werewolf, but like a were-ape. So there, there's kind of quite a lot going on at the end of this story to make sense of it and wrap it up. Though I think Seabury Quinn has laid out the groundwork, even though maybe it's not fair play. Yeah, my sense of, of how this works is that the serum, well, one, yeah, Manly definitely is a gorilla who is transformed into a human by this serum, but the serum wears off because of something to do with the moon seems to be the case. 
But that seems also totally unnecessary. Just have the serum wear off. You don't also need to have this be werewolf properties. It's, it's, there's, there's too many things going on here in the metaphysics of, of how this works. Though, you know, we haven't done a werewolf story yet. So I guess maybe this can tick our were creature box that we've we've just somehow managed to be on the air for years without doing one. But, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're about ready to move into the discussion here. But before we do that, we want to take a minute just to update listeners about where we are at with our Patreon goal of... Of doing uh, a series of episodes on H.P. Lovecraft's novel At the Mountains of Madness. And right now, we really only need nine people to join us at our lowest level on Patreon, and we would hit that goal, and we would begin producing episodes on that series. And we can say definitely right now, at this point in 2021, that we know we're not getting any Lovecraft on the main show this year. It just hasn't been nominated by anybody, hasn't uh, been elected on any of the ballots for this year. So this is the way we might get some Lovecraft this year, and we we need very few people to join us, even at the lowest level, to get us to that goal. And we would really like to read this story. Yeah, nine people. Uh, if you are have thought about supporting us but haven't yet, or you've checked out our Patreon, or you kind of hover around there thinking, should I do this? We only need nine of you, and it would be such a huge help to us, not only in continuing our podcasts and the whole Clay Temple Media Network, but also to get to do something I think we're both itching to do. So (laughs) you'd be helping us out with that as well. And we really want to also continue to encourage our listeners to continue to review our shows. It makes a big difference to us when we see those reviews uh, pop up on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to our show. Uh, It makes us way more visible. It makes it so that more people can find us and we can really make Clay Temple Media the network that we are trying to make it. Uh, and it's taken a lot of time, but we want to keep moving forward. Yeah. And I should say too, that, that of course, something that's coming up after At the Mountains of Madness is that we also will do an extended bonus series on the island of Dr. Moreau, uh, because this is a story that was, uh, was Gene Wolfe's favorite novel and is also so foundational to weird fiction, which we are seeing right here in this, in this story. This will be the, the, the sort of culmination of that. So uh, we'd love to have your support to help us get to do these these bonus series on these stories. It would be a ton of fun. And we really do appreciate all of the help and all of the support that we get. But uh, uh, let's get into the discussion, Brandon. Where do you want to start? I want to start with the conventions that C. Barry Quinn is working with. This is a really interesting story, historically speaking. It's not just fun to read. It really plays a role in the public imagination of weird tales, of weird fiction of what horror fiction might be of the progression of the occult detective but really what this story is doing in particular is bringing together a bunch of conventions that we've seen in stories we've read so far on this show we've got poe in murders in the room morgue we've got hodgson in the occult detective who is no longer the sort of edwardian hero sitting around his uh, drawing room telling stories to friends about the adventures he's gone on There's some Conan Doyle in here, too, who we've not covered so far. There's some Agatha Christie. And in the introduction to this collection uh, that we read the story in, the introducers, the the people, the editors of this text make no bones about C. Barry Quinn just writing for money. We should say he didn't need to write for money, but he was not shy about making money. And while he was writing these Legrandin stories, he was also carrying on with a detective series as well in another magazine. He was just a prolific writer. But what I want to ask you, Glenn, is what you thought of the number of borrowed conventions we found in this story. I brought up in the recap a couple times how he's kind of making changes in increments to what we've covered so, so, so far. So from Poe to Agatha Christie, the trope of the mad scientist, which is not used in murders of the room work. That's a much richer story than this one. This story feels almost more like a pastiche, like something Tarantino would have written if he were, uh, in this period of the, the magazine boom of the early 20th century and was pulling on all these influences, where do you land on how this works? Do you think Quinn's synthesis of these tropes and conventions works well? Do you prefer this story to the originals? Do you like the direction that Quinn has taken these tropes in? Oh, man. Yeah, so many questions here to to, to parse through. But first thing I will say is, I love this story. This was so much 
fun. And uh, I'll, I'll just share some some comments that I got from a handful of listeners about this story. These are all Patreon supporters. You know, this this was uh, elected on the ballot by our Patreon supporters, but it came in last. It was, or you know, it was the last one that we selected here, I should say. Uh, so it was the 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 one from this batch that received the least amount of votes. And most of the comments that I got from people who uh, were talking to me about what was on the ballot uh, said that they voted for this one because they've heard of Seabury Quinn, mostly because of, you know, Lovecraft hating him, but had never read him and didn't know anything about him and were interested in finding out. And that was where I was too. I had never read any of these stories. Um, I did know that they were occult detective stories, but I did not know that they were pulpy like this at all. And I do see where that really would have bristled Lovecraft for sure. But I absolutely adored this. Uh, to your question of, do I think this is better than any of the things it is drawing on? I mean, the answer is definitively no. <laughs> you know, that's that's not possible. I wouldn't trade one of those. Uh, you know, I would not trade an Agatha Christie novel in order to have this story, for example. But I do want to live in a world where these stories exist. Um, you know, you talked about this maybe not having, or, or you know, these aren't exactly your words. I don't think I'm paraphrasing. But, you know, there, there's not a lot of substance to this story is what you're, you're getting at in your characterization of it. And that is true, right? If you're going to riff on the murders in the room morgue, this is about the lightest way that you could do it, where you're really just taking the sensational plot element and then also some of the forms of the detective story, uh, though they originate there in that story. Of course, Quinn is drawing them from lots of other sources as well. They're updated here, and he's doing some things to update them himself. But he's not taking any of the substance in that story. You know, our episode on this story is going to end up being, I think, about a third of, you know, the number of minutes that we spent on Murders in the Room Morgue. But even though that's the, the case, and even though he's not really engaging at all with any of the things that are going on in the island of Dr. Moreau as well, that the substantive things that are going on there. Still, even though it's quite clear that Quinn was writing very quickly, was mashing up plot elements to make a sensational story that would thrill people, and it is thrilling, let's be clear about that, we can we can tease out some elements here about what it is that Quinn thought would shock and sensationalize and even scare people that certainly can let us access what magazine readers in America in the 1920s were worried about and scared about. And there is a lot going on here that that takes both Poe and Wells in different directions and, and certainly takes Agatha Christie and, and, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in different directions as well. Yeah, I think we have a very strange relationship with what we call the canon. Not you and I in particular, Glenn, though though you and I, I think, do. But broadly, culturally speaking, when we talk about like an education in the arts uh, or the liberal arts and the canon and what makes up the canon, we're really quick to dismiss stuff that was wildly popular as though the only things that were like impacting people's relationship with reality were the really meaningful good stuff that we determine as having an impact after the fact. And yet people were buying weird tales to read Jules de Grandin mysteries. And it's not clear to me that we can pull apart like what we like to think of the canon as with what is working commercially as though, yes, this stuff might've had an impact and we kind of fulfill our own prophecy with continuing its impact by continuing its impact by teaching the canon and saying like, this is the stuff that matters, but like the world view, like what the world was like, what was enjoyed, what, I don't know, we might call like the unthought or the background matter of life was is largely made up by these things we don't really reflect on. And I love finding things like this. They're kind of cultural artifacts in some way and reading them. One, this story still super works today. It's a lot of fun. You're also right to point out that it does inform what somebody who tapped into the popular imagination understood about what people wanted, what they wanted to pay for, to read, to be thrilled, uh, titillated, excited by. And in the introduction, um, the editors point out that once Seabury Quinn recognized that the editors of Weird Tales like to put like lewd drawings of women and stuff on the covers, he tried to include those elements in his stories to 
get them to be the cover story. So he had this kind of mercenary approach to getting published as well. Um, and, and this kind of leads into something I like to think about, which is the our fascination with mad science in the 20th century in terms of popular fiction. Of course, this has not really made its way to television so much, but it works a lot in techno thrillers, which I know you don't, you don't read a lot of these kind of contemporary uh, novel airport novels and beach reads. I read maybe two a year just cause I get tired. <laughs> um, but uh, it's, it certainly had a big impact on late 20th century and at least the first quarter of the, of the aughts, the 2000s, um, in terms of popular publishing. And I wonder, you know, I, I said a lot there, but one, there's this kind of dichotomy between popular fiction and the canon. And I wonder if I could just get a quick take on that. But also, why do you think weird science was has become, mad science, I should say, has become such a big deal in the 20th and early 21st centuries? Yeah, before I, I answer your questions, Brandon, I just want to make note, you, you've been saying, you know, the book, and I want to be clear that uh, we are reading this story out of the the first volume of five of the complete tales of Jules de Grandin uh, by Seabury Quinn that was put out by Nightshade Press. And the introduction you're talking about by the the, the editors, there are uh, uh, George A. Vanderberg and Robert E. Uh, Weinberg. And this is a beautiful collection. It was a great introduction. And uh, we should say thanks to them and thanks to, to Nightshade for, for getting all of this together and uh, and, and doing this work. It's awesome to, to have, uh, you know, we've only got the first volume here, but it's awesome to have this, this entire collection in existence to, you know, save, save these pulps from, uh, from disappearing. Uh, but to your point here, to your question about, Hey, why mad scientists? And, and in particular, why here in 1925 in the United States? And it's clearly connected to one of America's opponents in the first world war. Right, that we've got a a German speaking, we have an Austrian mad scientist who, uh, although actually not involved in the war in any way, and in fact is spends the the start of the war in a French prison, uh, but uses the war to escape and to go to the Belgian Congo, which presumably he can do because Belgium has been overtaken by the the Central Powers. It's been occupied by Germany. It's something we uh, we talked about when we did uh, Soldiers Rest by uh, Arthur Mack in which we did, a, I guess that was one of our Patreon episodes last year. Um, and so there's a sort of lawlessness there, perhaps, that uh, allows him as a German speaker to get by any officials without any you know paperwork or any questions being asked, that sort of thing. So I think that what Quinn is, is tugging at here is anxiety about what the world is like now that we know definitively that science and technology has created a world in which there are machines and, and perhaps other marvels that uh, can kill us by the tens, hundreds of thousands, by the millions, in fact, the tens of millions, and can also reshape us, can reshape the world, uh, make the world not as it seems and and confuse us, to make us unsure of even where we stand in the, the world, to make us uncomfortable in it. I, I think that's what Quinn is tugging at here with this mad scientist story and showing us things like, uh, do you really know who your daughter's fiance is? And and making us afraid of, of young men. I mean, I think it's fairly clear to me that Manly, as he's presenting himself with these papers and he's looking for a place to live and, and looking for a new town to start a life in, is presumably masquerading as someone who's been in the First World War. And you know may not be doing that well from it, and so there's a lot of uh, chaos that uh, from the aftermath of the First World War, even in New Jersey, that is is being pointed out here as as something that um, is an avenue for horrors to happen. Right, and I I don't think that our anxieties about technology that can destroy us have like gone away since the Cold War and, and nuclear proliferation, and I mean constant news stories about uh, like Iran and South and North Korea, um, you know, testing nuclear weapons or ref refining uranium or plutonium and all, all this stuff. These are ongoing concerns that I think shape popular fiction where we have, you know, like in James Rollins case, a team of special agent, like a cult detective <laughs> people who are like a special thing that are like, Hey, Solomon's minds just like, we found this thing there that could be world ending or, you know, just pulling on these, uh, 
threads of the of the pulp narratives and the pulp interpretations of what we consider canon. And and uh, one way that that works, one way that this story is a great example of that, as you've pointed out, Glenn, is that it takes the really sensational and exciting plot elements of what we think of as canon and turns those into the reasons why we read instead of thinking about like the social consciousness issues or the innovations in craft or something like that. Um, and kind of makes it part of our, like the simmering background anxieties that we see. This is really easy to overcome. We need a Frenchman with a great mustache who lives in this weird territory of the world or understanding of the world. And he just knows exactly what to do. Like our heroes also become simplified as the problems become simplified in, in pulp fiction. Um, and this has been ongoing, uh, though I think, you know, I don't know. I read, I read, as I said, more of this kind of contemporary pulp uh, novels, I think, than you do. And, and I see the way that these early stories have really shaped that avenue of the, of the techno thriller in our world today, which is not a genre I actually like very much. Uh, the last one I read, I put down because there were like three pages describing fountain pens. And I thought, this has gone too far. This is, this is not the technology we need to describe to us um, in a novel. Uh, but yeah, it's just, this, this really jumped out to me in terms of that. I, I want to talk about the other, some, some other genre conventions as well. Namely, I talked about the sense of fair play with the rules for mystery writers. Um, and I wonder if you think this story was fair in the way that it gave the audience enough information to put the mystery together or whether it was practiced well, I should say, because I think we could put it together. And I don't know if that's because we're aware of the genre conventions or if it was in the writing. I can't actually separate that out. Like I can't read this story and not know exactly what it's about because I've read a lot of weird and pulp fiction. I wonder if readers at the same time would have thought this was like kind of fair play in the detective fiction tropes. I cannot imagine any reader, you know, in 1925 or, you know, now or any point in between who has not solved this case before the detectives have, right? It's just so obvious what the answer is. And to me, that does not indicate a failure on Seabury Quinn's part. It, it indicates to me that he wasn't trying to get us to uh, tag along on a whodunit, that the joy of reading this is is not the joy that you're supposed to get from uh, Murder on the Orient Express or the Murders in the Morgue, for that matter, where we really are being invited to ourselves, be the detective. Here, we're really more in the backseat on this. We're we're really just along for the the ride. We're watching these guys work and maybe in some ways part of the joy of this actually as an audience member thinking about what the mystery is is that we know that we have figured it out before the narrator has, right? That it's the sidekick character, Dr. Trowbridge, who seems kind of buffoonish and clueless in some ways in this story. And we can have the smug self-satisfaction of knowing that we cracked the case before he did. Um, you know, so long as we don't think too much about how to, how, how easy it was, you know, to, to do that and how we were, we were never supposed to not know what was going on to begin with. But th that's my sense of it anyway. Um, I'd be interested in hearing from, from listeners who think that we, this really was supposed to be a mystery and, and we weren't supposed to be sure what the solution was going to be. Yeah. I, I would like to hear about that as well, because I think you're absolutely right. Like the joy of this story, the reason why we turn the pages is seeing how the first premise and conclusion are going to come together. But we already know the first premise and the conclusion. What we don't have is premise two, premise three, you know, how they, how they work together on one another. And by the time we get to the end, uh, it's, it's, it's baffling. I mean, it's genuinely insane. <laughs> it's yeah. a lot of fun to read. I mean, I, I also love this story. If I, if I haven't made that clear, I truly did. And, you know, I, I've been using the, the term whodunit, which is, of course, a real term. I haven't made that up. But I think some of the joy of this actually is not the the whodunit, because that we are led to right away. We know immediately, oh, okay, it's an ape in a tuxedo. But for each mystery that is solved, there is then another mystery that we don't have the solution to immediately, which is, okay, but how? And then, okay, but why? And 
Quinn does, I think, masterfully lead us from one to the other. So there is always something that is keeping us turning the pages, something new that we want to find out, even if it is no struggle to find out those answers. And so it's really more that he's he keeps introducing layers of mystery rather than introducing only one mystery and making us work to solve it throughout. I mean, that that's my sense of the craft. Yeah, this is the Columbo approach to uh, telling a mystery, <laughs> not the not the murder she wrote approach. <laughs> to to uh, refer to those old series, those are official schools of thought. Yes, there's two. There's only two ways to tell a mystery now. <laughs> it's either the murder she wrote way or the Columbo way. Uh, this story is the Columbo way. All right. The the last thing I want to talk about is the the broader impact that this series has had on on weird fiction. Maybe as it's transitioned into urban fantasy rather than the techno thriller, which I, which I often think about. But from what I understand, all of these stories take place in Harrisonville, New Jersey, all sorts of strange stuff ends up happening there. I'm pretty sure there's a, a werewolf tale as I see on the cover of this book, a, a werewolf. Um, so there's gotta <laughs> be. And uh, in, in the introduction to this collection, the writers talk about how, you know, this idea of like situating the, a cult detective or whatever in one place we can see echoes of that in Buffy as that all takes place in Sunnydale in one location. So like this, it's different than the supernatural approach, which is like traveling from town to town. But I, I wonder how you see Glenn, this early 20th century iteration on the weird fiction, the occult detective tale working to influence that, which comes after it. Do you think maybe to specify, do you think that pastiche has become a big part of the game of our kind of mass engagement with weird tales, urban fantasy, supernatural fiction, stuff like that. I mean, it's largely televised now, um, though horror novels are are a pretty big deal. Yeah, this this is a really great tack to to take here because we have spent uh, really just about every episode of uh, occult detective stories that we've done or every episode we've done on an uh, occult detective story. We have spent some time talking about the history of that genre, the development of that genre, and, and thinking about how it's really the origin of urban fantasy. And although, as I said earlier, this is the very first Seabury Quinn story I've ever read, reading this was uh, uh, jaw-dropping and eye-opening at the same time, because my reaction to this was, oh, this, this is where everything that is on the CW right now comes from, right? That that Seabury Quinn is not possible without Edgar Allan Poe and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, is not possible without Algernon Blackwood, not possible without... William Hope Hodgson. I think that that's pretty clear. But everything that we get after this, I think, owes directly to Seabury Quinn, that the influence of Blackwood and Hodgson and even Poe on what it becomes urban fantasy or shows like Angel and uh, Smallville that you've brought up and Scooby-Doo, right? All of these things that we've we've brought up is is Seabury Quinn. Seabury Quinn is the crystallization of all of that and is the series that spawns, uh, you know, literally a thousand imitators that uh, of all the stories that we've read, of all the writers that we've read, it's possible that Seabury Quinn is the person who's having the most influence on our pop culture today. Yeah, that was my sense as well. The story feels so fresh and contemporary because our kind of visual media space is is really for the past two decades just been doing this sort of tale uh the occult detective maybe taking place in one location maybe taking place in many locations but it's applying the the method of the detective to like the weird supernatural stuff that's taking place in the world i mean i just started watching cw's new Nancy Drew series and it's exactly this and it's <laughs> it just works well if there's something about it that the the strangeness of the places that we live in kind of the suburban world I think require this kind of engagement um that Seabury Quinn maybe invents this was also the case with True Blood as well that like hey people are deeply strange the places where they live are deeply strange and how do we tell stories about weird suburban America that aren't about couples hating each other and always being on the verge of divorce <laughs> that we see in like John Updike and Richard Yates novels, you know, like this is the different, this is the kid engagement of the weird world that 
is hard to explain why adults do what they do. Why is everybody getting upset about a McDonald's coming into town or something like that? You know, it's just that, that weirdness of, of the world that is kind of beyond our immediate understanding that really hits on the local level. If you pay attention. Well, and as I said, I would be really excited to do more of these. I I just found this thrilling. I've used the word several times, but I I just can't get away from it. I I really found this to be an exciting, thrilling story. You know, they're going to be formulaic, right? That's definitely going to be the case. And so they would get stale. I think, you know, if we decided that we should abandon all our other projects and just do a weekly uh, Seabury Quinn, you know, read along podcast, I think we would get bored of that pretty quickly. But I hope we get to do more of these. You know, I would love to do two or three of these a year Uh, would be amazing and just kind of spot check in. And especially if we do have people in the, the audience if we have listeners who uh, who know Seabury Quinn well and uh, want to tell us what some of the highlights are, I mean, think you know we would definitely would like to work through those because I I certainly enjoyed the heck out of this. Yeah, I can't wait to do more, and I'm sure we'll have more Seabury Quinn coming up on the ballot. But that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And if you would like to support the network and get us to cover Lovecraft's novel At the Mountains of Madness, and hey, also H.G. Wells' novel The Island of Dr. Moreau, please join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. Let us know what you thought of our coverage of the horror on the links at our Clay Temple forum or on our new subreddit. We'd love to hear more of your thoughts and your engagement with this with this tale that seems strangely contemporary. We also didn't talk about what Tanit's doing here. So let us know your thoughts about that too. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually ashamed of myself. You you invoked some uh, ancient religion and I uh, I let that nugget drop. But uh, yeah, that's what we've got a forum and a subreddit for. So we'll take it up there. <laughs> well, as I said at some point in the, the show, this was the the last episode from this uh, batch of, uh, of stories selected on a Patreon ballot. So next time we'll be starting with the first story that came in on a new ballot. And that is going to be The Portrait by Nikolai Gold. Uh, We're going to do two episodes on that one. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.